This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus paying ransom demands doesn't pay, brief statistics for business and healthcare, and preparing for the new normal work from home. This is episode 30. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so that you can better protect your business and your identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawaj Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawajtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, as always, thank you for joining us in this week's episode of the Proactive IT Podcast. We have lots of stuff to share with you today, updates and uh, uh, HIPAA news, security news, all kinds of interesting cybersecurity and compliance news. But before we jump into it, I want to tell you that I am now part of the 405D Task Force, which is a federal task force that is, that's goal is to improve cybersecurity in healthcare, so be looking for more of that to share with you in the future. It's um, a lot of what I've been sharing with the HIPAA education in the last few weeks, so I'm I'm excited to be a part of that. And my first meeting will be in July, so look for more of that to come. We do have a, a number of updates to talk about, but before we jump into that, I want to again thank you for listening. Wherever you're listening to this, if you could like, share, comment, or review. We're just trying to reach the masses so that we can share all of this relevant information with them as well, and that will be better prepare business owners, healthcare providers, lawyers, financial firms, um, just really any business owner to be prepared for the inevitable, and that is to be a victim of a cyber attack. Uh, also, if you're in a HIPAA compliant business, if you could go to Facebook and in Facebook search, type in Get HIPAA Compliance and join that group. Um, that would be awesome too, because then you'll learn everything that I learn, plus what I already know, plus the information that I get to share out to people, and you'll be better prepared in your healthcare practice for HIPAA compliance and cybersecurity. All right, as I mentioned, we do have a number of updates to talk about, software updates, and um, first we have Chrome 83 was released with quite a few security upgrades and privacy upgrades, but also some cool feature upgrades. Um, the security upgrades, um, probably the most important, so that is the reason you should update your Google Chrome ASAP. They do did, did re- redesign DNS over HTTPS. They also included a new safety check feature in Chrome, um, so kind of a feature, kind of a security, both of those, right? Easier security and privacy control, so it's easier to manage your security now. Uh, Enhanced safe browsing protection. And what that means is that when you go to a website, it will show, you can enable it to show the full URL instead of just the partial URL, which could be important, especially for phishing purposes. Um, Actually, that is a separate feature in its own. So enhanced safe browsing is uh, when enabled, Google will perform real-time check of URLs that will visit 
that you visit to check for known threats. So they've kind of already been doing that, but I guess they've enhanced that even more. The cool feature that's been added to this is group tab groups, which means you can group your tabs into, you know, like if you, if you have Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn all open, that could be your social media tab. If you have bleeping computer and, um, Cyware open that could be your security your cybersecurity tabs things like that so you could group your tabs into how you want to tab them and have less tabs open i guess in a sense um a little more organized more organization so that's a pretty cool feature and it did address 38 security vulnerabilities in total in the update so get it updated right away um it's real simple to update google chrome so Make sure you take care of that. Drupal did release a security update. Um, you should update to anything above and beyond 8.8. .8. So there is a, a vulnerability that is impacting Drupal 7, 8.7, .7 and 8.8 .8 that could allow a remote attacker to exploit the vulnerability to take control of the affected system. Apple released a security update for Xcode again. I think that's the second one this month. So get that updated. ISC releases security advisory for Bind, Bind being Berkeley Internet Name Domain. That um, is a protocol in Windows, so there is a um, security advisory for that. There is not necessarily an update, but there is a workaround, so make sure you check out the, the advisories on that. That is available on CISA, and it is in regards to CVE 2020-8616 and 86.17. Adobe released updates for Premiere Pro, Audition, and Premiere Rush. So if you use any of those project products, um, update them ASAP. VMware released a security update for Cloud Director. I think that might be the second one this month as well. Um, there is a security VMware security advisory linked to the CISA bulletin. And that is at vmware.com slash security slash advisories slash vmsa-2020-0010.html. And finally, Microsoft did release a security advisory for Windows DNS servers. Microsoft has released a security advisory that addresses a vulnerability affecting Windows DNS servers. An attacker could exploit this vulnerability to cause a denial of service condition. We talked about that a little bit on the daily episode. Um, that is the advisory is ADV. Two zero 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 nine. So make sure you check out that advisory. It is not a, an update. It is an advisory. So Microsoft is aware of a vulnerability involving packet amplification that affects Windows DNS servers. An attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability could cause the DNS server service to become non-responsive. Um, and it, there is um, mitigation and workarounds for it. Now, of course, we are approaching the end of the month, which means Patch Tuesday is already passed. So we did have a number of updates to begin the month. And uh, if you want to listen to those, that would be previous episodes for the month of May. I really should start a group blooper reel because uh, the number of times I have to edit these things is go back and re-record it. It's, it's, it's pretty funny. Um, so we're going to jump into the news now. First up on Threat Post, paying ransomware crooks doubles cleanup costs, according to a report. Um, 
the report summarizes essentially the the to summarize it it costs seven hundred and thirty thousand dollars on average to recover from a ransomware attack but if you pay the ransom that's if you don't pay the ransom if you do pay the ransom then it will cost you approximately 1.4 million dollars on average and that's according to the state of ransomware 2020 report on sophos um few other interesting statistics, 73, uh, 51% of those polled said they were hit with ransomware attacks in the last year, and 73% of those said data was encrypted in the attack. So just over half of the businesses polled, and that was that's 5,000 IT managers across 26 countries. So that's quite a few businesses. I think that's a pretty good representation of, of the global economy. Um, just over half have been attacked, and 73% of those have been have had files encrypted. So 27% were able to fend off the attack. 94% of organizations that experienced data encrypted got it back, more than twice as many. 56% recovered their data caused using backups rather than paying the ransom, which was 26%. So 26% of those polled that were hit with ransomware paid the ransom which means their recovery costs were quite a bit higher. The private sector was hit harder, though ransomware attacks in the public sector, which is believed to be one of the hardest hit by these attacks, are high profile. The report shows that actually that sector is less affected by ransomware attacks than the private sector. I also believe that probably more so the private sector is under-reporting, um, and so that might lead to even bigger numbers if, if the businesses reported cloud data is vulnerable to ransomware there is a a common misconception that cloud data is not if, if you if your infrastructure is hit with ransomware that your cloud data is safe and that is not necessarily true it really depends on how it is set up so don't just um, rest on your laurels when it comes to cloud security or I'm sorry security overall involving cloud uh, cloud infrastructure, infrastructure as a service is what it's called for the most part. Uh, we have a report on NBC News. This has been reported all over the place about criminal group that hacked law firm threatens to release Trump documents. We reported this last week. We talked about it a few times on the daily episode as well. A law firm in New York City was hit with a ransomware attack. The law firm is Grubman, Shire, Masalas, and Sachs, or GSM Law, I believe is... I believe it's either GSM law or GSMS law. Um, and the law firm is a law firm for, and you know, celebrities, entertainers, and so forth. And so we're talking big names like Lady Gaga, Madonna, uh, Bruce Springsteen, a bunch of big names. And in in last week we saw the file structure for what they claimed, for the information that they claimed to have. So we saw the hierarchy and there were files that said Lady Gaga and Bruce Springsteen and so forth. Now, this week, they claimed, early in the week, they claimed that they had, or maybe late last week, they claimed that they had information on Donald Trump that they were going to leak unless they received a $42 million demand. Uh, they have since said that they've sold that information to someone else, and now they're looking for a buyer for the information on Madonna. I uh, The law firm says that they did not represent Trump in a, at any time. Um, so it's hard to say whether or not they have information. Supposedly there was some emails released 
that were somehow had something to do with Trump. I have not seen the email, so I don't know what the what the content of those emails was. Doesn't seem like anybody really cares about the content of those emails at this point. Um, so I have to believe they don't really have anything sensitive about Donald Trump, President Trump. Um, but they have supposedly have sold that information now. So we'll wait to see if anything else comes of that. That is where we stand at this moment. The law firm has refused to pay the ransom. Um, they obviously do have information on other celebrities, so we'll see what happens. On Security Week, that's securityweek.com, likely breach shuts down Arkansas unemployment program. Now, there was a few of these. Massachusetts had some issues, and I believe maybe Arizona was another one. A state program that was created to process unemployment applications in Arkansas for self-employed individuals or gig economy workers appears to have been illegally accessed and has been shut down, officials announced Saturday. Governor Asa Hutchinson said he learned Friday evening that an applicant for the program is believed to have somehow accessed the system, prompting an investigation of a possible data breach. The probe will determine if any personal data from applicants was obtained. If any individuals had their data compromised, they will be notified and steps will be taken to address the situation, including possible credit monitoring, Hutchinson said. An outside IT expert was brought in to review the system. We want to make sure that the system is in good shape before it goes back online, the governor said. News of the program breach was first reported on Friday by the Arkansas Times, that being last Friday. About 30,000 people have applied to the program, which has had other problems. Earlier this month, a computer glitch forced some who had already applied to resubmit supporting documents. So that's all the details that are on that compromise. Um, have not seen any updates to that, but that was reported on Monday the 18th the attack or the compromise. I don't know if it was an intentional attack, but the compromise occurred on May 15th, Friday, 2020. On HelpNet Security, we have an article here that talks about how shadow IT threats are a... Shadow IT is a threat to businesses, a security threat to businesses. Um... And now that we're, we're experiencing more remote workers, that threat continues to grow. So as cyber threats and remote working challenges linked to COVID-19 continue to rise, IT teams are increasingly pressured to keep organizations' security posture intact. When it comes to remote working, one of the major, one of the major issues facing enterprises is shadow IT. So when, what is shadow IT? End users eager to adopt a newest cloud application to support the remote work are bypassing IT administrators and in doing so unknowingly opening both themselves and their organizations up to th new threats. So I'll give you an example of what shadow IT is. You work for a company, you want to be able to remote into your work computer from home. So you set up TeamViewer on your work computer, you set up TeamViewer on your home computer, and now you're able to log in to your work computer from home. And I believe there was a HIPAA breach just recently similar to that. Um, that is shadow IT. It's not an approved application. You somehow got the ability to install applications on your work computer, which should never happen. There should You should not have an administrator account unless you are, of course, an administrator. And um, that creates a problem because now TeamViewer, which has been used in the, in past, in the past, to attack other um, 
other businesses, other other computer users, is now running on a computer all the time. Somebody gets access to the account, various ways that can happen. Now they have access to that work computer. Now they have access to the internal network of your, of the business you work for. And now they may be able to do more damage based on that, especially since you probably have administrator access to be able to install their program in the first place. So what are the risks to not having this under control? The, first of all, there is the increased risk of data breaches, which is basically what I just said, right? So if you have a, a, a back, we'll call it a back door. It's not really a back door in the sense of you've been compromised, but it's a backdoor in the sense that IT administration might not be aware that it exists. They should be, and it shouldn't have never happened in the first place, but they may not be aware that it exists. And which means it's not being monitored, which means it could be easier access. Maybe you're not using complex passwords like you should be. Multi-factor authentication. Now the bad guys have a way in, they get in, and they steal data. Compliance issues and regulation issues, regulation issue violations. So now you have, you know, you have to deal with HIPAA, GDPR in some places, CCPA, the Shield Law in New York, um, uh, FINRA, um, anything with law firms, SOX, even PCIDSS, right? Um, now you might be violating compliance. And again, I think I do recall the scenario I just talked about. In, in a healthcare environment. So, missed financial goals due to unforeseen costs. According to Gartner, shadow IT represents as much as 30 to 40% of total IT spend, which can be attributed to several factors. Oftentimes, users and departments buy shadow solutions within a similar product category already covered by company-wide enterprise agreements, doubling up on capabilities and spending budget without the IT department's knowledge. And depending on who pays the bills, shadow IT tends to skew reporting Decrease, re, decreasing efficiency due to time-consuming audits and redundant tasks. So in the case of TeamViewer, you know, you could do it for free, but let's say you opted for the paid version. Um, now you're paying for it, but they already have software, or maybe they use remote desktop protocol. Um, you know, whatever the case may be, now we're adding to the costs of the uh, IT budget. So what are the solutions to help manage shadow IT? First of all, it's not in this article, but I will say this. You, administrators should be the only one to have access to install programs on uh, employee computers. There shouldn't, should not, most employees should not have access to that. So that would alleviate a lot of the issues. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure you're providing IT teams with a SAS, SAAS management solution that brings visibility into the usage, renewal schedules, Cost, policy, enforcement, and security to avoid the consequences of shadow IT. SAAS is short for software as a service. One option is to introduce broad SAAS management and discovery capabilities to track apps using a number of discovery methods. This would provide IT departments with a full picture of their SAAS environment, including all applications and users through a single dashboard. SAAS management, we'll call it SAS going forward. SAS management. Solutions also have the potential to educate users on the apps available through the business, choose the best solutions, and utilize those platforms to their full potential. Now, uh, you, so if you're using Google G Suite or Microsoft 365 in your environment, then you already have a lot of SaaS programs that are available to you. So check those out. But there are other dashboard, other offerings out there that you may want to take advantage of. So 
something to think about in your environment. Make sure that shadow IT is not an issue. And then, you know, give the employees what they need to do their job, especially now that work from home is becoming a, a more common trend after during COVID-19 and, and post-COVID-19. It sounds like Twitter did announce that work from home would be permanent for most employees. And Facebook is now working on 50% work from home as well. Bleeping computer Revel ransomware found buyer for Trump data now targeting Madonna. We just talked about this from, uh, I think I said CBS or NBC. I don't remember who it was. Um, but there was another article posted a few days later that I want that I shared because it was, it was said that it was Revel, which is also Soda Nukibi. And it, it is GSM law, by the way. So now they are looking for a buyer for the Trump data. So the first article shared that they had information on Trump. They wanted $42 million. Sounds like they weren't going to get it. So now they sold the data that they allegedly have, and they're looking for a buyer for the Madonna data. Ransomware attack impacts Texas Department of Transportation. This is also on Bleeping Computer. This is also the second attack on, on a Texas in the last week. A new ransomware attack is affecting the Texas government. This time hackers got into the network of the state's Department of Transportation, Texas DOT less than a week ago on May 8th, which is now um, a little almost two weeks ago. The Texas court system was the victim of this same type of attack, which resulted in servers being taken offline to prevent malware from spreading to the network. In a brief announcement on social media, Texas DOT said that it detected the attack on Thursday, May 14th after finding unauthorized access to the agency's network. Further examination determined that the event was part of a ransomware incident. Immediate action was taken to isolate affected computers from the network and block further unauthorized access. It is unclear how many systems are impacted or the ransomware family used by the intruder. Some operations have been affected by this incident, but Texas DOT Executive Director James Bass says that the agency is working to ensure critical operations continuing during the interruption. The agency's website informs that technical difficulties make some features unavailable and that they are working to resolve the issues promptly. As it usually happens with this type of cyber attack. The FBI was alerted and is involved in the investigation. So Texas has now had two ransomware attacks in two weeks on their uh, different government departments. FBI warns of ProLock ransomware decryptor not working properly. So ProLock, which was formerly Pwned Locker, P-W-N-D Locker, is now called ProLock. Uh, ProLock is another ransomware group that is now working with uh, another malware, Quack something, to gain. So Quack, I forget what it's called. It may be here in the article, but it it, it is a a banking trojan, which means it's grabbing credentials so that they have access even after the ransomware is removed. QuackBot, that's it. Q a q q a k bot. Um, but ProLock, the decryptor itself doesn't work properly. So this is one of those cases where you pay the ransomware demand and you get the decryption key and it doesn't work. Um, and the reason it doesn't work is files larger than 64 megabytes may become corrupted during the decryption process and integrity loss of one byte per one kilobyte is possible with files over 100 megabytes and additional work may be needed to make the decryptor work properly. So this is a case where paying the ransomware probably is going to cause more problems than, than if you just restore from backups, assuming 
you have backups, that is. Uh, Prolock is as serious a threat as the others, which is uh, Mays, Soto, Nukimi, Ryuk, and Locker Gaga, or Locker Goga, that is. Um, those are now telling people that if you don't pay the ransom, they're going to release data that they have stolen. And uh, I believe Prolock is now doing the same thing. So um, paying might not help you restore, but it will certainly, hopefully, help prevent a data breach from becoming public. Now, I'll say it again, ransomware attacks should be considered data breaches. They're not, in most cases, they should be at this point. Threat Post shared an article that said Bluetooth bugs allow impersonation attacks on legions of devices. So a host of unpatched security bugs that allow BIAS attacks affects Bluetooth chips from Apple, Intel, Qualcomm, Samsung, and others, which is pretty much every smartphone that's out there. Academic researchers have uncovered security vulnerabilities in Bluetooth Classic that allows attackers to spoof paired devices. They found that the bugs allow an attacker to insert a rogue device into an established Bluetooth pairing masquerading as a, a trusted endpoint. This allows attackers to capture sensitive data from the other device. Now, I shared last week the plan going forward for COVID-19 contact tracing, and it was going to use Bluetooth. And Apple and, and Google were both going to come up with a way to do this at the operating system level. And my concern was Bluetooth is always vulnerable. There's always vulnerabilities that pop up with Bluetooth. And here we go. So now what could happen? The bugs allow Bluetooth impersonation attacks, which is BIAS for short, bias on everything from Internet of Things, gadgets to phones to laptops, according to researchers at the Ecole e Polytechnique Federale de la Sanne, EPFL, in Switzerland. The flaws are not yet patched in the specification, though some affected vendors may have imp implemented workarounds. We conducted BIAS attacks on more than 28 unique Bluetooth chips by attacking 30 different devices, the researcher said. At the time of the writing, we were able to test chips from Cypress, Qualcomm, Apple, Intel, Samsung, and CSR. All devices that we tested were vulnerable to the BIAS attack. The issue lies in the pairing bonding protocols used in the specification. When two Bluetooth devices are paired for the first time, they exchange a persistent encryption key, the long-term key that will be will, that will then be stored, so that the endpoints are therefore bonded and will connect to each other without having to perform the lengthier pairing process every time. And if you've ever paired a Bluetooth device, you know it's not always fun. For the attacks to be successful, an attacking device would need to be within wireless range of a vulnerable Bluetooth device that was previously established bonding with a remote device with the Bluetooth address known to the attacker. Which isn't that hard because if the Bluetooth... I, I've, so I've been places where somebody's trying to connect to a Bluetooth device and it pops up on my phone and I can choose to accept or decline. And of course I always decline, but if I accept it, I now have access to that device potentially. So it's really not that hard to grab the MAC address of the of another device. Um, the post-pairing connections are enabled because the devices, let's call them Alice and Bob, perform a background check to make sure both possess the long-term key. This is done using the legacy secure connections or secure connections protocol inside the Bluetooth specification, which verify three things. Alice's Bluetooth address, Bob's Bluetooth address, and the shared long-term key. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about how, how the technical, um, 
the technical the technical information behind the attack and what could occur but essentially if the attack happens they could read all of the data on your phone um, potentially so remediation is forthcoming there is there has not been any updates to anything yet and as you know if you own an android you have to wait for the specific vendor of your android device unless you have a, a google phone you have to wait for the vendor to release the update and then um with Apple, that's always an update to everything when they release the update. So um, this was the concern that I expressed when it came to contact tracing, and here we have it. On the Hacker News, Ukrainian police arrest hacker who tried selling billions of stolen records. So the Ukrainian police have arrested a hacker who made headlines in January, January last year by posting a massive database containing some 773 million stolen email addresses and 21 million unique plain text passwords for sale on various underground hacking forums. In an official statement released on Tuesday, the security service of Ukraine, SBU, said it identified the hacker behind the pseudonym Sanix, who was resident of Ivano Frankivsk, I don't know how to say that, it's Ivano, I-V-A-N-O, dash F-R-A-N-K, I-V-S-K region of Ukraine, but it did not reveal his actual identity to the media. In January last year, the hacker tried to sell the massive 87 gigabyte database labeled as the largest array of stolen data in history, which according to security experts was just a fraction of the stolen data Sanix collected. According to authorities, Sanix had at least six more similar databases of stolen and, and broken passwords totaling in terabytes in size, which also included billions of phone numbers, payment card details, and social security numbers. So here's the crazy part. So uh, he had all this information, email addresses, um, e-wallets, all kinds of stuff, PIN numbers, bank card, PIN numbers. He was selling the databases for between 45 and $65 each. That's not a lot of money. And so when I tell you that if your data is stolen, it's going to be in multiple hands before you know it, that is exactly going to be what happens. Search of, at his residence resulted in the seizure of computer equipment with two terabytes of stolen data, phones, and evidence of illegal activities and more than $10,000 in cash from illegal transactions, which was 190000 Ukrainian hivernus, which is approximately $7,100, and then $3,000 in U.S. Sanix is now facing Ukrainian criminal charges for unauthorized interference with computers and unauthorized sale of dissemination or dissemination of information with limited access stored in computers. If found guilty, he could be facing up to eight years in prison, and uh, which, I don't know, doesn't seem like a lot for the, the amount of damage he potentially have caused, but what can I say? And if you thought vigilantes were just a thing in movies, they're not. If you thought it was just all about Batman, it's not. Vigilante hackers target scammers with ransomware and DDoS attacks. This is on Bleepy Computer. A hacker has been talking just or taking justice into their own hands by targeting scam companies with ransomware and denial service attacks. Last week, a new ransomware was discovered called Milkman Victory that a hacking group stated they created to attack scammers. In a conversation with Bleepy Computer, the hacking group known as Cyberware stated that they have started targeting companies performing what they call loan scams. The victims are saying that they give loan, but you first have to pay 
and then you get nothing. The hacking group told Bleepy Computer. The, as part of their attacks, the threat actors are sending phishing emails containing links to executables masquerading as PDF files. They are also conducting denial-of-service attacks to bring down the company's websites. The ransomware is being distributed as a destructive wiper attack as it does offer a way to contact the attackers and does not have the encryption key. I do not ask for money because scammers do not deserve money for scamming innocent people, the hackers told us. Instead, the victims are left with a ransom note stating the computer was destroyed because we know you are a scammer. So I think it does a typo. They don't have a way to, to contact. The hacking group claims to have targeted the German Lejeunen loan company w- whose website is currently down with a DDoS attack and emails spreading the ransomware. The attackers state that this ransomware is based on hidden tier, which means that even if a key is not saved, it can still be decrypted using the brute force attacks. Anyone who is encrypted by hidden tier variant may be able to recover their files for free using Michael, Gillep- Michael Gillespie's hidden tier decryptor. Um, so, vigilantes using ransomware. Sounds pretty cool. Right, hot topics for the week. We have uh, a few things we're going to discuss. The first one on ZDNet home office technology will need to evolve in the new work normal. And what does that mean? So Twitter announced uh, either early this week or late last week that work from home would be a permanent option for employees. Facebook announced, I believe, yesterday that... um, they would like to have more than 50% of their workforce to be work from home by 2030. Uh, so work from home is going to become more of a reality for a lot of companies. I know that it's not new and it has been growing for some time. And there were some people that said it's great and others that say it's not. I believe it is good for those that like it. It's not, it's not good for everybody. Not everybody wants to work from home. I believe those that like to work from home are more productive. They're just not going to work the traditional hours, if, if it's possible, they're not going to work to the, the traditional hours, the nine to fives, the eight hours a day. They're going to work, you know, typically I work from roughly seven in the morning till three to four in the afternoon. And then I go back to work around eight, eight thirty at night for a few hours. So that's, you know, that's my typical day. Um, I'm still monitoring throughout the day, but that's typical. And I think that's true for a lot of work from home people. They, they break their days up around different factors that impact their schedule. So um, the new normal for work will be more remote, spur at home office innovation wave, make edge computing more mainstream and require more automation, immersive experiences, and robotics. Those are just some of the takeaways from my conversation with Dell Technologies CTO John Royce. This is written by Larry Dignan, Dignan D-I-G-N-A-N, on ZDNet. Uh, and as he says, the conversation revolves around what we've learned so far from the great work from home experience experiment that, and where we're going next. So the great work from home experiment, I'm assuming, is linked to another article. I'm assuming he's talking about COVID-19, which kind of forced work from home on everybody. Here are the key takeaways, and in in, uh, there is a video included if you want to go over to ZDNet and, and uh, watch the video. Of course, the link will be in the show notes. Culture and home environment matters. Not surprisingly, Dell didn't have a hard time 
moving more than 100,000 people to work from home arrangements. After all, Dell says, wise, thin clients, laptops, and virtual desktop platforms, Royce said. When you move everyone, then you start to discover some of the things you didn't know about. We clearly understood that people would work from home. So we had the proper equipment, the proper VPN access, the proper network capacity, VDI, all of those things. But we started to realize that maybe we didn't have the right environment at home. Maybe we didn't have the right culture in the sense of people were getting overwhelmed, but we would call Zoom fatigue and other new normal scenarios. So those are good points. So first of all, I want to say VPN access is critical. Uh, if you're going to use a remote desktop, it is even more critical. VDIs, which is virtual desktops, uh, also a good viable option if sending them home with a laptop is not a good option and they're going to use uh, their own device, then VDI is another option. You can lock that down much better than you can lock down a, a person's personal laptop. Zoom fatigue is becoming a real problem for some people. Um, I think to some extent I feel it. Uh, because I'm, I do hop in and out of Zoom meetings probably at least two or three times a day. And then on top of that, I'm, I'm getting my kids in and out of Zoom meetings right now because of the school from home. Um, the, the, there are, they do make something called blue, I think they're called blue glasses that was supposed to help with Zoom, t- Zoom fatigue. But so there's that. And it's not, it's called Zoom fatigue. It's not just Zoom. It's Teams. It's Google. It's Facebook. It's all of those things. Uh, this idea that part of what we do will be virtual and part of what we do will be physical, but more importantly, those two worlds are going to intersect. We're going to run into each other. And so some examples of that are, for instance, in our client businesses, we've already seen this. We have material scientists, we have mechanical engineers, we have people that actually have to work on a physical device in a lab somewhere. They can't do that work from home exclusively. So initially we set up programs to allow scheduling of lab space and sanitation of lab lab environment and to get through that. But as we look forward, what we're going to see is the environments are either going to become more automated with robotics so that person can actually do mechanical work from somewhere else, or more importantly, maybe one person is in the lab, but other person, other people now have better visual representations, better immersive technology so they can be part of that experience. So sort of a hybrid model, which we've also discussed, right? Whether it's education or healthcare or any other industry, virtual and physical experiences will evolve and meld together. The definition of working from home will change, and I agree with that as well. Our assumptions around that about what it meant to work from home were wrong collectively. We, ha- we had this idea that work from home was about work-life balance. You were working or you were doing home stuff. That was what worked from home had to deal with, and what we almost immediately discovered was it wasn't that simple. In fact, there were at least four different contexts that people had to live in or experience sitting at their desk at home at any given time over the course of a day. An immersive work experience such as Zoom call or interacting with people, a non-immersive work experience where you have different deliverables, a personal IT experience such as answering email and paying bills, an entertainment experience. The funny thing is all of that had to happen in the same space. And so we discovered that the monitors weren't configured properly. It was hard to context switch between them. We didn't have enough bandwidth. In some cases, the devices people had in their houses weren't powerful enough to do all these tasks, said Royce. Technology will have to know our context. The home technology experience will have to adapt to our various modes and have the capacity to manage the the compute requirements. There is a very large innovation cycle coming to really 
make the work at world at home adaptable to all of these contexts as we look forward. Edge computing will, be, will come to the home as remote work evolves more to include augmented and virtual reality as well as video conferencing and data intense applications, IT infrastructure at home will change. Roy said that uh, edge computing devices may be deployed in homes by enterprises to beef up home infrastructure. Early when we were talking about edge, it was about all smart factories and smart cities and smart hospitals, but there's another class of edge compute that's really interesting in this new world, said Royce, and there's there that is to augment the compute capacity of the devices that attach to that edge. AR, VR, and applications that need horsepower would use these edge compute devices, and laggards will invest heavily now. Digital transformation laggards will invest heavily now. So... Um, what does that mean? So basically, we're going to have some new devices, and they didn't really talk about security in here. That will also play a big role in this because typically the home user has a home router, and that's the extent of their security. They may have a, you know, maybe an AVG or an Avast or some other relatively cheap malware protection, um, things like that, and then so that's that could create a problem. They're, they're also probably less likely to be security focused at home. So that's going to create a bit of a struggle for for um, IT teams around the world. Uh, those are those are concerns. Um, the digital transformation laggards will invest heavily now. We, some, some companies learned really quickly that they're going to have to invest in work from home. And they saw that over the last few months and they saw the struggles and uh, I saw it across different industries personally we handled you know everything from healthcare to law firms to uh, even a municipality um, so it is it is uh, something that that should have been addressed a while ago you know this the ability to work from home has been fairly easy now for probably close to 10 years and it's gotten easier over the last few years especially with the with the explosion of zoom and other collaboration platforms slack and teams so now that it's easier than ever those that didn't invest in that are going to invest in that and probably more than ever before all right so we have a couple of reports to go over we have one from verizon verizon data breach report dos skyrockets that's denial of service and espionage dips so you may or may not be aware of Verizon issues an annual report that is called the, the Data Breach Investigations Report, DBIR for short. They released it this week, and denial of service attacks have spiked over the past year, while cyber espionage campaigns have spiraled downwards. That's according to Verizon's 2020 Data Breach Investigations Report released Tuesday. So that was uh, Tuesday, May 19th. And so they analyzed 32,002 security incidents and 3,950 data breaches across 16 industry verticals. Notably, this year's DOS attacks increased in number by 13,000 incidents and were also seen as a bigger part of cyber criminals' toolboxes. DOS attacks made up 40% of security incidents reported, beating out, beating out crimeware and web applications. While DOS attacks use differing tactics, they most commonly involve sending junk network traffic to overwhelm and crash networks systems. It doesn't help that cyber criminals have created new and dangerous botnets to launch DOS attacks like Kaji and Mirai variants over the last 
over the past few years. While the amount of this traffic is increasing, as mentioned in DDoS, we, ju we don't just look at the number of attacks that are conducted, said researchers. We also look at the bits per second, which tells us the size of the attack and the attacks and the packets per second, which tells us the throughway of the attack. In other words, how much traffic is coming through. Um, what we find is that regardless of the service used to send the, the attacks, the packet to bit ratio stays within a relatively tight band and PPS hasn't changed that much over time sitting at 570 megabits per second for the most common mode. Cyber, cyber espionage attacks, meanwhile, have seen a downward spiral dropping from making up 13.5% of breaches in 2018 to a mere 3.2% of data breaches in 2019. That may come as a surprise given that espionage campaigns were actually on the rise in 2019, Verizon DBIR. In addition, a slew of cyber espionage campaigns, such as ones targeting the WHO, that's the World Health Organization, several governments in Asia-Pacific region, and more were unearthed over the past year, but researchers say underreporting, which we talked about earlier, some, some of the private sector anyway might be underreporting, may be a factor in the dipping statistics. The drop in raw numbers could be due to either underreporting or failure to detect these attacks, but the increase in volume of this other patterns is very much responsible for the reduction in percentage, said researchers. So in other words, if last year you had 100 cyber attacks and 15 of those were cyber espionage and 10 of them were DOS, then your number of cyber espionage looks bigger than DDoS. But if this year there's 50 DDoS and still 15 cyber espionage, then it hasn't changed, but this percentage goes down. In fact, financially motivated breaches continue to not only be more common than espionage campaigns, but a wide by a wide margin, making up 86% of all breaches, but also increasing over the past year, they said. Um, financial origins, financial motivated breaches, uh, it really shouldn't come as a surprise. The amount of ransom, the dollar amount for ransom demands has continued to rise year over year, month over month, and it's going to continue to rise because people keep paying it. When it comes to data breaches, almost half, 45% stem from actual hacks, while 22% use social attacks, that's social engineering, and we've talked about social engineering extensively. 22% breaches involved malware, and 17% were created by errors, and 8% of breaches stemmed from misuse of authorized users, by authorized users. In fact, internal actors were only around... 30% of the breaches with the majority 70% actually coming from external actors. While researchers said that incidents stemming from inside actors have grown over the past few years, that's likely due to increased reporting of internal errors rather than evidence of actual malice from these actors. External attackers are considerably more common in our data than our, our internal act attackers and always have been, said researchers. This is actually an intuitive finding as regardless of how many people there are may be in a given organization there are always more people outside it nevertheless it is widely held opinion that insider is the biggest threat to an organization's security but one that we believe to be erroneous malware has been on a, const a consistent and steady decline as a percentage of breaches over the f last five years researchers said due in part to the increasing level of access by cyber criminals to credentials so in other words, it's easier to get credentials, so why bother with malware? We think that the other attack types, such as hacking and social breaches, benefit from the theft of credentials, which makes it no longer necessary to add malware in order 
to maintain persistence, said researchers. Now, some attackers add do both. They'll steal their credentials, they'll steal the data, and they will add malware because they may want to come back later. According to, accordingly, the top malware varieties in data breaches was topped by password dumpers, which are used to collect credentials, followed by capture app data and ransomware. Ransomware attacks continue to grow over the past year and have created high-profile headlines and headaches for companies such as Norsk Hydro. Ransomware is the third most common malware breach variety and second most common malware incident variety. Part of this continued growth can be explained by the ease with which attacks can kick off a ransomware attack, researchers, researchers stress. And 7% of the ransomware threads found in criminal forms and marketplaces service was mentioned, suggesting that attackers don't even need to be able to do the work themselves, said researchers. They can simply rent the service, kick back, watch, eat, watch cat videos, and wait for the loot to roll in. So in other words, I could pay someone to run a ransomware attack for me and not have to worry about all the all the technical details. The Verizon DBIR also broke down data breaches by vertical to show that cyber criminals are drastically changing how they are targeting industries. For instance, point of sale related attacks once dominated breaches in accommodation and food services industry. However, they have been replaced by malware attacks and web application attacks. Um, in, uh, instead, responsibility spread relatively evenly among several different action types such as malware, error, and hacking via stolen credentials, said researchers. Financially motivated attackers continue to target this industry for the payment card data it holds. The educational services industry saw phishing attacks trigger 28% of breaches and 23% of breaches stem from hacking via stolen credentials. Ransomware is a top threat for education space with ransomware accounting for approximately 80% of malware affections in the incident data. Ransomware attacks triggered by financial motivations also plagued the healthcare industry. Other top security issues leading to breaches include lost and stolen assets, basic human error, however, privilege misuse, which has topped data breach causes for healthcare in the past for the first time this year wasn't an issue in the top three. In the 2019 report, privilege misuse at 23% of attacks while in 2020, it has dropped to just 8.7%. So that's good news in healthcare. Um, I will say this, the sectors, the, the verticals that saw the most activity, uh, education, finance, healthcare, information, uh, manufacturing, professional, public, well, those aren't really verticals, but... Um, yeah, I think that's it. So those are the, so you have, you have, let's do that again. So this is healthcare, not, yes, healthcare, information, finance, education, manufacturing. Those are the verticals that seem to have the most activities. All right, and then we also have the April health, uh, April 2020 healthcare data breach report. There were 37 incidents Healthcare data breaches of 500 or more records, again, pretty much on pace for the last six months. You know, going back all the way back to November was 36, December 41, January 33, February 39, March 36, and April 37. So that is pretty much on par with what it's been. What is down is the number of healthcare records that were breached for April, 442,943, so just shy of 443,000. Versus March was 829,000 and February was 1.5 million. 
So we're back to January levels, which was 463,000 roughly. So that is good news. Um, the 10 largest breaches, most of them were relatively small compared to previous months. All were healthcare providers with the exception of Beacon Health Options Inc., which was number 10 on the list. That was a business associate that had 6,723 and that was lost. Other portable electronic device, which means those were not um, encrypted. And I'm not sure, I have to double check, but I believe that was the one in Texas where hard drives went missing. Um, so the, the top nine, Beaumont Health, 112,000 email, Meridian Health Services Corp, 111,000 email, Arizona Endocrinology Center, 74,000 electronic medical record, Advocate Aurora Health, 27,000 email network server, Doctors Community Medical Center, 18,000 email, Andrews Braces, 16,000 network server, Andrews Braces, by the way, so that is a dentist provider, a dental provider. 16,622 individuals were impacted, and that was a network server. UPMC Altoona Regional Health Services, almost 14,000 email. Colorado Department of Human Services Office of Behavioral Health, 8,000 network server. And Agility Center Orthopedics, 7,000 email. Um, causes of April 2020 healthcare data breaches, hacking our IT incident, 18, unauthorized access disclosure, 16, theft, 2, loss, 1. So those bottom two, theft, two, and loss, one. Not a lot. And, uh, and by the way, those are, those are mitigated by encrypting your devices. So if you had encrypted those devices, that, that those three aren't even reported. Location of the breached PHI, PHI again being per, uh, protected health information. Location is other two, other portable electronic devices, three, paper and film, eight, the, the, the fact that eight, of the breaches for April were still paper and film is, uh, is I don't know, it just seems a little crazy to me. Um, email, 18, 44% of all the breaches for April. Again, email. And this just tells me, yet again, we're still not taking the precautions to make sure that PHI is not an email and that we're not locking down those email accounts and we're not training our employees on phishing. Network Server 5, Laptop 3, Electronic Medical Records 2. Now, will Laptops 3 and other portable electronic devices also 3? So, that's 6. Those two, 6 of those are mitigated with encryption. Electronic Medical Records, if you have multi-factor authentication turned on, maybe that doesn't happen. So, that's 8 right there eliminated. And then finally, what uh, data breaches by covered entity type? So, you have Three were business associates, two, um, four were health plans, and 30 of them were healthcare providers. So, um, healthcare providers are, are appear to be dropping the ball in April. It's going to be different. Um, you know, we, we, we've only had one, one financial penalty imposed so far this year, and I believe that was in January. So, COVID-19 has definitely taken away from from the um, enforcement activity for the year so far. Now that we're starting to reopen, perhaps we'll see more enforcement. I don't know what will happen yet. But remember, one of those breaches was in Connecticut. We are based in Connecticut. Um, one of those breaches did occur in Connecticut in April. I think it was April that it happened. So that's it for the HIPAA data breach report for April. We're going to move on to our HIPAA education. Thank <laughs> you.
All right, we're going to continue on with our 405D Task Force Best Practices, Cybersecurity Practices for Small Healthcare Organizations. This being um, the task force that is trying to improve the cybersecurity posture for healthcare organizations around the world, and we are on practice number six, network management. So com computers communicate with other computers through networks. These networks are connected wirelessly or via wired connections like network cables, and networks must be established before systems can interoperate. Networks that are established in a secure, insecure manner, sorry, increase an organization's exposure to cyber attack. Proper cybersecurity hygiene ensures that networks are secure and that all network devices access networks safely and securely. Even if network management is provided by a third-party IT support vendor, the organization must be must understand key aspects of the proper network management and ensure that they are included in contracts for these services. Well, so these are smaller healthcare practices, so that would mean that more than likely they ha do have outside IT vendor, third-party IT vendor. Um, this is probably going to change now with the work-from-home push that we're going to see in the coming months and years because of COVID-19. Thank you, COVID-19. The first part of this is network segmentation. And, and remember, this is all based on the NIST cybersecurity framework, right? So we get the information from this cybersecurity framework. The first part is network segmentation. Configure networks to restrict access between devices to that which is required to successfully complete the work. This will limit any cyber attacks from spreading across the network. So what does that mean? If you have a piece of medical equipment, and this happens a lot now. So we have medical equipment out there that's running outdated versions of Windows or whatever operating system it might have. So a lot of Windows 7 still exists. I think there's even some Windows XP out there still. And these are a lot more susceptible than Windows 10 right now. Those devices should be segmented from your office staff's network. They should not have the same, they should not be on the same network. It is called network segmentation, meaning they're not, they, they may be connected to the same devices, but they cannot communicate with each other is what it means. Disallow all internet-bound access into your organization network. If your host servers that interface with the internet, consider using third-party vendor who will provide security as part of the hosting service. Restrict access to assets with potentially high impact in the event of compromise. This includes medical devices and Internet of Things items like security cameras, badge readers, temperature sensors, and you're going to see more of those building management systems, and by temperature sensors, uh, they mean building temperature sensors, but also you're going to see temperature sensors now for people. Just as you might restrict physical access to different parts of the medical building, which is a medical office, that's a good point. So you, you're going to lock up offices, well, I would hope you lock up offices that might have files and um, maybe computers and so forth that sh people shouldn't have access to. Although I got to tell you, I, I don't see that a lot of the time. It's important to restrict the access of third-party entities, including vendors, to separate networks. Allow them to connect only through tightly controlled interfaces. This limits the exposure to and impact of cyber attacks on both the organization and on third-party entity. Establish and enforce network traffic restrictions. These restrictions may apply to applications and websites as well as to users in the forms of role-based controls, restricting access to personal websites, e.g. social media, couponing, online shopping, limits exposure to browser 
add-ons or extensions, in turn reducing the risk of cyber attacks. So you can also include some DNS filtering that will uh, block out different types of traffic that you don't want on, on your network. So in other words, if you want to block social media sites, you can block those. If you want to block um, adult-oriented websites, you can block those, which you should block those. Then you have physical security and guest access. Just as network services need to be secured, physical access to the server and network equipment should be restricted to IT professionals. Configure physical rooms and wireless networks to allow internet access only. Always keep data and network closets locked, of course. Grant access using badge readers rather than traditional key locks. Disable network ports that are not in use. Maintain network ports as inactive until an activation request is authorized. This minimizes the risk of unauthorized users plugging in to in an attempt to in a, to an empty port to access to your network. Um, this used to happen a lot. I don't think it happens as much anymore, but people used to just walk in with a laptop, with an Ethernet cable, plug into the network and do what they have to do. In conference rooms or waiting areas, establish guest networks that separate the organizational data and systems. The separation will limit the Accessibility of private data from guests visiting the organization. Validate that guest networks are configured to access authorized guest services only. Um, I would take that a step further and say you should have separate networking devices for those networks. So I know the the trend now is to have a device, one device that has separate networks. So you have your internal network, your guest network. Well, that could the, the potential, f the risk that exists that that guest network can be used to access the internal network, while it's minimal, it 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 is higher than if you had two separate two separate devices, maybe even two separate networks. Um, for you know, if you have a separate internet connection coming into your practice for the guests, that would mitigate any chance of being able to access your internal network. And intrusion prevention. So implement intrusion prevention systems as part of your network protection plan to provide ongoing protection for your organization network. Most modern firewall technologies that are used to segment your network include an intrusion prevention system component. Implementing IPS and configuring them to update automatically reduces your organization's vulnerability to known types of cyber attacks. IPS are available as part of a suite of next generation network applications or as a standalone products that can be added to existing networks. So you may have heard of um, intrusion prevention systems. What they do is they watch for traffic on your network that wasn't there before maybe. You know, there's different ways, there's, there's different ways of doing it, but typically they watch for traffic that wasn't there before, and if they see it, then they block it. That's kind of layman's terms. Threats that are mitigated by this type of um, by this practice, include ransomware attacks, loss of theft or equipment or data, insider accidental or intentional loss of data, attacks against medical service that may affect patient safety. So we just talked a few minutes ago about the April 2020 healthcare data breach report, and some of that included theft or lost devices. So those threats would be mitigated by um, instituting these practices. All right, it is time for the HIPAA breach report for the week. 
Um, I don't recall if we shared last Friday's on last Friday's podcast, so I'm going to share it today. And if it's redundant, then it's redundant. But we do have a few from last Friday, and then we have a few more reported a couple days ago. Management and Network Services, LLC, a Dublin, Ohio-based provider of administrative support services to post-acute healthcare providers, has discovered the email accounts of some of its employees have been compromised. You might be wondering why I'm stressing the word some. In a May 4, 2020 breach notification letter, MNS explained that it learned on or around August 21, 2019, that several employee email accounts had been subjected to an unauthorized access between April and July of 2019. The analysis of the email accounts recently revealed five accounts contained the protected health information of patients of its accounts. So that five accounts, that's a lot of accounts that are compromised. The information in emails and email attachments varied from individual to individual. It may have included the following data elements, name, medical treatment, information, diagnosis, information, codes, medication, information, dates of service, insurance provider, health insurance number, date of birth, and social security number. A limited number of individuals also had their driver's license number, state ID, card number, and or financial account information exposed. MNS has taken steps to improve email security, such as enhancing password policies across the entire organization and implementing multi-factor authentication for all employee email accounts. So that's a little too little too late. So they did not have these things in place. They were not educating their employees. They did not use, they did not adhere to the 60-day breach notification rule. A lot of failures on the part of this breach. Santa Rosa and Rob Rauner Park Oral Surgery uh, on Portland, Oregon, or in Portland, Oregon, has discovered the email accounts of one of its employees was accessed by an unauthorized individual. The breach was detected on March 11, 2020, when suspicious activity was detected in the email account. The forensic investigation revealed the email account was breached on December 20, 2019, and access remained possible until March 11, 2020. So that's um, almost three months of, of access. When the account was secured, the compromised account was found to contain a large, or, or I'm sorry, range of protected health information and may have been viewed or acquired by the attacker. So they don't show, they don't list uh, how many people were impacted by this. They it does say inf affected individuals may have been offered. Affected individuals have been offered complimentary membership to My ID Care, credit monitoring, and identity theft protection services from ID Experts Santa Rosa. And Ronart's Park Oral Surgery is reviewing and enhancing its policies and procedures and will take further steps to improve information security. Oral surgery, dentists. Hmm. PHI of 3683, Ashtubula County Medical Center, patients exposed online, Ashtubula County Medical Center, an affiliate of Cleveland Clinic is notifying 3683 patients that some of their protected health information has been exposed online. On or around January 6th, ACMC posted an Excel web uh, spreadsheet on a website to comply with government requirements about medical cost disclosures. On March 12th, 2020, ACMC learned that a limited amount of protected health information had been accidentally included in the spreadsheet. The exposed information was limited to patients' names, diagnosis, and health and treatment histories. No social security numbers or financial data were exposed out of the abundance of caution. Affected individuals have been offered a 12-month complimentary membership to Identity Theft Recovery Services through ID experts. Um, 
kind of a failure. There, there should be some. There should be checks and balances here that that should not have happened. And I'm not sure why a government requirement would would mean they share. I don't know what government requirement that is. That just seems a little weird to me. Orchard Medical Consulting, a provider of nurse case management services for workers' compensation claims, has announced that an unauthorized individual gained access to the email account of one of its employees and potentially accessed protected health information stored in the account. The attack was detected on January 30th, 2020, and immediate action was taken to secure the account. The investigation revealed the account contained names, dates of birth, and for a very small number of individuals, social security number, and medical information such as diagnosis, treatment plan, and or health history. No evidence of data access, data theft, or misuse of PHI has been discovered. Affected individuals have been offered complimentary membership to TransUnion Interactive's My True Identity Credit Monitoring Service out of the abundance of caution. To prevent further breaches, email security has been strengthened, policies and procedures updated, and multi-factor authentication has been implemented yet again. Um, and then earlier this week, we have three more breaches. Onamia, Minnesota-based Millax Health System has experienced a phishing attack that potentially resulted in the exposure of more than 10,000 patients, protected health information. Phishing emails were sent to some of its employees containing links that directed them to a website that requested them their email credentials. A small number of employees were fooled by the scam. So here we go again. No education, no multi-factor authentication. Millax. Millax Health System learned about the phishing attack on November 14th, 2019, and launched an investigation to determine the extent of the breach. On February 24th, it was confirmed that stolen email credentials were used by the attacker to access email accounts between August 26th and January 7th. A review of the compromised email accounts was completed on April 22nd and confirmed that the patient information may have been accessed. So they had access for uh, roughly four and a half months um, which is a long time to have access to email. So, you you know, patient information may have been accessed. It was accessed. Information potentially compromised includes first and last names, addresses, dates of birth, provider names, dates of service, clinical information, treatment information, procedure types, and for certain individual social security numbers. No evidence was found to suggest patient information was obtained or misused by the attackers. All accounts have been secured, a full password reset was performed for all email accounts, and additional measures have been implemented to strengthen email security. Affected individuals were notified about the breach by email, by mail on May 11, 2020, and have been offered complimentary credit monitoring services. So according to the breach portal, there's 10,630 patients affected by this. Um, again, Big time failures. Multiple email accounts means there's no multi-factor authentication. There's no training. There's no education. There, and they did not adhere to the 60-day breach notification rule. North Shore Pain Management in Massachusetts has, has experienced a manual AKO ransomware attack, and the data of some of its patients was stolen, as will be the case for ransomware. So this is technically a data breach, right? The incident has not yet appeared on the HHS Office of Civil Rights Breach Portal, and at the time of writing, there was no substitute breach notice on the company's website. The breach was covered by databreaches.net, which reports that approximately four gigs of data relating to the company has been published on the tour site used by the attackers. More than 4,000 files containing patient and employee information has been dumped online. The files contain a range of sensitive protected health information, including social security numbers, health information, and insurance information. 
The Detroit-based occupational therapy, speech therapy, and family therapy provider Cygenics Inc. has discovered one of its employees forwarded a spreadsheet containing a customer containing customer information on a personal email account. The breach was detected on May 25, 2020 as part of the regular security review. The email was sent on May, March 24, 2020. So one day after he sent the email, they discovered the breach. The spreadsheet was contained... The spreadsheet did contain information such as customers, names, diagnosis codes, provider names, and appointment times. No other information such as treatment notes were detailed in the spreadsheet. No reason was given as to why the employee sent the spreadsheet to their personal email account. Cygenics says it found no evidence of attempted or actual misuse of client information. So I could tell you what probably happened here is the employee wanted to do some work from home, emailed the spreadsheet to his personal email account to do that work. Now... Is it his fault for doing that? Maybe, maybe there was no, there's no procedures in place. We don't know. Maybe Cygenics should take a look at potentially making it, making a, a way to work from home. You know, this was during COVID nineteen, so it's possible that this person just wanted to work from home and avoid trying to get sick. And um, this is this is the outcome. So that's going to do it for the breach roundup for this week and that is going to do it for this episode of the proactive it podcast until next week stay healthy stay safe and stay secure